Got your notes there, chapter 10. Uh, we'll be going over 9 through 15, so kind of retouching on 9 and 10 today, which we went over last week if you were here. Uh, so quick refresher if you got your Bibles open. Um, in chapter 10, Paul's writing this letter to the church in Rome, and, and starting in chapter 9, uh, he started talking about his heart and his love for his brethren, the Jewish people. Um, in chapter 9, it goes over God's sovereignty, and uh, he teaches you know, who God is and what his position is and what, and what our position is um, and where our hearts should be positioned. And the problem that the Jews had with that, right? At the end of chapter 9, we look at them um, stumbling over the cornerstone, which is Jesus. Chapter 10, uh, Paul starts in again saying his, it's his heart's desire to pray to God for uh, their salvation. Uh, he acknowledges they have a zeal for God, but it's um, not in accordance with knowledge. He says in verse 3, uh, not knowing about God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the, the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then we got into the section, Moses writes, the man who practices righteousness, which is based on the law, shall live by that righteousness, right? And then we got into verses 6, 7, and 8, uh, that the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Um, it's not to go searching for this righteousness. It's not something that man can find on his own. It's nothing that man can achieve on his own. Um, he cannot go up to heaven to achieve this righteousness. He can't go searching through the abyss. He can't go searching to the end of the seas. It's nothing that he can do, right? Again, we just went over Romans 9. that talked about um, God doing it, not man doing it. And, and what is... What does it say? What does what say? Well, the righteousness that's based on faith says it's in your heart. Uh, it's near you and in your mouth and in your heart. And that leads us right to verse 9. So we'll go over these 9 and 10 again. Um, so follow along. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So we know today, as the body of Christ, um, that the gospel is for the whole world, right? To confess Jesus as Lord, it's, it's truly declaring anything else and anyone else um, not Lord, not God. So if we think and we put ourselves in Paul's time, and he's writing this to those in Rome, um, what, were they, what were they around? They were around um, a culture that was full of Greek mythology, that was full of Greek gods, and um, they worshipped those gods, all the pagans, all the Gentiles. Um, they worshipped Caesar, right? It was said that he should be called Lord, and he's the only one that should be called Lord. Um, so confessing that Jesus is Lord to these folks at this time, it, it meant calling all those Greek gods, lowercase g, and Caesar and everything else 
of a so-called deity. It's just calling them vain. It's saying they are nothing. They are worthless. They have no power over um, us, over the saved, over salvation, over the world. It's calling Jesus that, Lord. Uh, so we already looked at the equality of God. Uh, sorry, the equality of the word Lord, capital L-O-R-D, in the terms of God the Father and Jesus, right? We went through all of that. Um, well, not all of it. We went through some of it last week. There's a whole lot more. Morning. If you want to do that study on your own, I'd definitely encourage you to do that. Um, the one who... Jesus is the one who possesses sovereign power of all the world and all the heavens. And we see that laid out in Scripture as well. So confessing him as Lord is um, putting... You got a copy there? You need a copy? You need a copy? It's putting him above anything and everything. Thank you. Thank you. Right? We went over that last week. We talked through this. We looked at Scripture, laying that out. Um, we see that that's not something that the later Christian faith has made up. That's in Scripture itself. We commit ourselves to be set apart and turned away from sin and towards God in that confession that Jesus is Lord. We're saying He is the Almighty. He is the one set above all else. He's created everything and we are submitting ourselves to him. Well, to do that, we need to listen to what he says. We need to believe what he says and who he is and what God's declared him as, right? Any questions on that from last week or thoughts that you thought about after the, the lesson we went over from last week? Okay, well, as we go on and believe in your heart, so it does require both confessing and believing in the heart. So that regeneration of the heart is what allows um, one to truly say and mean that Jesus is Lord. We find uh, the regeneration explained in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. And we know that that must happen for one to believe and for one to confess that Jesus is Lord. That righteousness is the propitiation and justification of one positionally towards God. Salvation is the saving of one from God's eternal wrath. His wrath positionally towards sin, God is, he only has one position, one disposition towards sin, and that is wrath. So it's saving the individual personally from that wrath, from that eternal wrath. So once one believes, once the believer believes and he confesses, he will declare, Lord, it's, it's your will, not my will. So we're seeing that here laid out in verse 9 and 10. Um, but again, we've got to remember where we're at in this letter. And in Romans 10, it's still about the heart of the Jews and explaining to the church and for them to be able to explain to the rest of the people in Rome as well uh, what the gospel is and what they must believe. So Paul here is still writing about the Jews and, is, and he's pointing out that they have a refusal to believe Jesus is the Savior of the Jews and the Gentiles, right? They really don't like the idea of the Gentiles being saved alongside them. They rejected the cornerstone of this salvation 
in their disdain and uh, for, for Gentiles, right? They really do hate Gentiles. They were not fans of them. They weren't um, big, big proponents of living with and offering salvation to the Gentiles. So we see in a verse 11 here, Paul goes into quoting scripture. For scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Verse 11 gets into the misunderstanding the Jews had about God. About God, God's attitude towards whom he desired to save. So we look again back through verses 6 and 8, and we see Paul's argument. Again, righteousness based on faith says as follows. It's not the works that you can do. And what were Jews basing everything that they did off of it was their their works and their self-based righteousness that they were seeking, searching for, and doing to earn their way to heaven, uh, to earn salvation from God, right? So again, Paul's using that argument here in verse 6, 7, and 8, and now in 11 where he's pointing out in Scripture. And this Scripture goes back to Isaiah 28. So in verse 11, Romans 10 Verse 11, he's quoting Isaiah 28, 16. Um, and pulling that out and showing whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Well, the Jews just applied that to themselves. They didn't think in terms of whomever, according to the world, just within their own elect people. So Paul's pointing that out, remember? In chapter 9, chapter 10, their hearts are zealous for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And Paul's still using this argument to show um, that this salvation is not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And he's excited in saying that, but so many Jews rejected that. And it's pointing out um, the issues that they're having in their own heart towards it. That they would never partake of the salvation of the Lord. That wasn't something the Jews had in mind. They assumed all... Gentiles would be humiliated before God in their death. And what they went before the throne with, they assumed that the Gentiles would be humiliated with their lives and how they lived because they weren't part of God's chosen people. They definitely weren't part of the nation of Israel. But verse 11, as we see here, also says, who call on the Lord will not be put to shame. And it's Again, the same term that we are using and applying for Jesus here because that term has been used for him and towards him throughout all of Scripture. Absolutely. Absolutely, we see that. Um, so what, is, what does disappointed mean? In verse 11 here, will not be disappointed. Uh, well, that's also translated put to shame or humiliated, right? That word um, disappointed isn't uh, t- today how we use that word. I don't 
believe that's how Paul was using it. Um, I would be disappointed that we didn't have stuffing at dinner last night. Um, no. <laughs> but we didn't have turkey. We had ham, so we had other good stuff with it, you know. <laughs> I'm only saying that because she's not here. <laughs> Uh, but that, that is a totally different meaning, right, than what Paul needs to be using here. So it, can, it definitely can be translated as put to shame and humiliated. And that would fit in much, much better than that. Just general disappointing the way we translate it and understand it today. Uh, so Paul's pointing to Isaiah, saying God's salvation has always included Gentiles even though they weren't God's chosen nation. So Jews, Jews took great offense at this. Um, from the moment that they set themselves on a platform above the rest of the world in their own minds, um, they did everything they could to avoid Jews. Uh, God commanded them to avoid lots of their culture and to stay away from them from the beginning in many ways. Uh, but they took that and they added to it, right? They hated Gentiles. They were repulsed by them. We can see this in several stories in the Bible. Um, Jonah being one of them. Jonah being a, a Bible story favorite from my kids. But his heart and where it was pointed and positioned when he was told to go to Nineveh and uh, tell the people to turn from their sins and repent, those people were not Jewish people. Those people were Gentiles. And Jonah had a great disdain for those people. And he did not want to do that. He turned and ran from God. Um, and probably not because he didn't think it would happen. Probably because he knew God would save them um, and forgive them for what they were doing. And even once he did do it, after the lesson he learned, he was still, he had a horrible attitude about it, right? Against those people. Um, and he was, he was pouting afterwards. We see it in uh, the parable of, you know, the Good Samaritan. Um, the Jews really, really did not want to um, be classified alongside with Jews. And they definitely didn't want their salvation that they knew to be offered to the Jews as well. And the Jews, Jews were led by their own self-righteous pride. Uh, it wasn't humility and love. But as we see continuing on into the verses here, Paul says right after that, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all abounding in riches for all who call on him. Right? So there's no distinction between the Greek and the Jew and salvation and, and God's eye. But this is such a huge insult for them that as Paul is stating that, um, I think the Jews that would not be believers that are hearing this or reading this are just becoming more upset with this, enraged with it. But Jews always saw themselves as the distinct people set apart from God and exalted. And God did set them apart, right? He set them apart to do what? What did God set them apart to do? Uh -huh. 
there we go. There we go. To be a light to the nations, um, to be set aside and holy. We see Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. 5 and 6, if you want to flip to that real quick. We'll just see, um, hear what God's doing and his instruction to them as he's led them out of Egypt. Or chapter 19, find it here. Verse 5 and 6. Now then, if you will indeed be obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, from all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak the sons of Israel. So we see as God's setting them up and preparing them for what's to come, yeah, they're, they're to be a light. And they are to be set apart. And they are to be different. And is that similar to what Christians are called to do today? Absolutely, right? We're, we're supposed to be set apart. We're not supposed to fit in so well with the world that no one can tell us apart. But are we supposed to hate everyone else and not want their salvation at all whatsoever? <laughs> no, we definitely know that is uh, the opposite of what Jesus has commanded us to do. Um, but that's where a lot of the Jews' hearts went, right? It went towards just for them, they're special, no one else is allowed to have this type of salvation. And Paul talked through that at the end of chapter 9, that there was a stumbling stone that they stumbled over, um, it was a rock of offense to them, but at the very, very end, verse 33, at the last part of the verse, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Again, he points that out. So he's using that same uh, passage again here in verse 11, and then down into 12. Second part of verse 12. Abounding in riches for all who call on him. God's blessings are rich and abounding. And salvation is at hand for both the Jews and the Gentiles. But the Jews didn't believe God's riches were for anyone but themselves. Just them. And they were focused on themselves. The Jews thought they were the only chosen people and God would destroy all the others. And Paul is just continuing making an emphasis here. The gospel is meant for the entire world, all nations, all people, and in all time. So we see in verse 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is from Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Paul's using that language from the prophet and scripture to show the Lord saves all who call on him. And again, the word Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That's the name for our God. That's his personal name that he gave himself, Yahweh, right? Jehovah. It's an important name, and it has an important meaning. And it's difficult for our world today and our culture today to pick that up, to comprehend that in a way that has the same meaning that it had back then. We don't have kings now. We don't have Caesars now. We don't have 
things like that in our country over us. Um, we have presidents, but it's everyone's own opinion if they're in charge or not, right? We find this reason or that reason to uh, want to uh, abide with what they say or not, no matter what side you're on, either, either side. Uh, we rebel in one way or another because he's not king, he's just the president, and then we have a constitution. Right, right, right. And when they make laws and rules that we don't like, um, you know, I, I can do it myself. Where, well, that's that's unconstitutional, right? We have this issue, but that wasn't the issue back then in Rome. That wasn't the issue as Paul's writing this. Um, Caesar was king in Rome, and what he said, that was the law. Every word that came out of his mouth was the law in that in that area in that territory. He commanded that he was Lord, that he was ruler, that he was in charge of everything. And so this is a big deal for someone to call Jesus Lord and position him above Caesar, position him above any Greek god or goddess that they had um, come up with and worshipped on their own. It was a big deal. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was, a, it was a big deal. And again, and Joel here, but who will call on the name, of the, uh, the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's the same thing we see in verse 9, just up a couple of verses, confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. That's God Almighty. So it's obvious, very obvious. Again, Paul was equating Jesus as uh, Yahweh here and that he is God and that he is above all. It's important to see the prophet is calling all people and not only Jews. Paul is pointing uh, this out here. He's using the Old Testament scripture to show where the Jews have made that mistake and thinking this is just for themselves and not for the rest of the world. And as Paul's going through chapter 10 here, I mean, there is definitely some responsibility of man themselves to call on the name of the Lord, to call on him in hope of their salvation and um, trust and faith in him and no one else. But Paul's making the point that it's for Gentiles and Jews together. We know that Paul, as he went and taught, he always started in the synagogues. And he always went to go share the gospel and the good news with the Jews first uh, and was rejected and took it to the Gentiles after that. And he, he was making a point in doing that as well um, because that's God's point. As God says in Scripture, to the Gentile first, and also to the the, uh, to the Jews first, and also to the Gentiles. Then we get into verses 14 and 15. How then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news or good tidings of good things. So as Paul continues on this train of thought, it's not just for the Jews. Salvation is for the world. God wants the world to repent. He wants man to see um, that he is incapable of doing the works to earn God's righteousness himself, right? And that the Jews are incapable of doing it too. That that wasn't the point. 
of the law was to get them to do more and more and more and more works to earn their way to heaven, but rather to see that they need a savior. It was a mirror put up in front of them so that they would realize their need for salvation. And it's for the world, Paul's pointing that out. It's for the Gentiles and the rest of this world. He's saying this in these verses, the evangelistic call is necessary for the lost, which would include both Jew and, and Gentiles. So as we look, Paul asks how will they call on him, call him Lord if they haven't believed. And I got in the notes there, Paul's rhetorical questions again. Well, we've seen Paul ask a lot of rhetorical questions in Romans. That's why I put again on your sheet there. Um, but what's the reason for the rhetorical questions in the past? Do you remember? For those of you who've been in the class longer. We saw some just a couple chapters ago. Yeah, yeah. As, as you read through Paul's letter, it makes sense what the answers are. Um, but before understanding uh, Scripture, and definitely before believing the gospel, some of the stuff is, is questions that would come up, and you would ask, you know, why, why this or why that? Um, but yeah, he's anticipating questions that will get asked as this gets read, and then as it gets taught, and as it's shared, throughout that area of Rome. So he's asking rhetorical questions again. So I wanted to look at a couple of the, the meanings here. Um, preacher, we'll look at that. Um, how will they call on him if they have not been believed? So that was the first uh, question, though. And let me find myself on my notes here. Um, as we look at that first question, the answer is rhetorical because they can't, uh, and therefore they won't. But why can't they? Why can't they call on him whom they haven't believed? Why can't someone do that? Do we know the answer? In John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear me, and they know my voice, and I know them, and know their voice. They don't have that relationship yet. They can't call him by his name yet. Yep, okay. Anything else? For the unreached people groups, like at that time, of course, there were many. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and today there's still many. For unreached people who have never heard the gospel, they don't know what to believe because they never heard what to believe. Yes, absolutely. That's true too. And someone can't just call on Jesus as Lord um, out of their, their own thoughts, right? without, without hearing this, without knowing it, without being told. Um, one, because of our nature. Right? We're, 
Uncapable. Did you have your hand up, Andy? I did. Or were you stretching? No, I wasn't stretching. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, Jesus also said that he had come to call sinners and not those who are righteous. Yeah, absolutely. They, they felt they were righteous in God's sight. Yeah. Anybody who, anybody who has that self-righteousness in themselves will not have a And as you know, why... I mean, what are some of the reasons why why is that? And I'm thinking it's particularly having to do with these things. Yeah. The ears. They won't hear. They're closed. Yeah, they're closed. Right? Because of their self-righteousness, their they piety. Have eyes to see that they're blind, they have ears to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Our natures as humans, as individuals, is opposed to God, right? We see that all through Romans. We are naturally opposed to God. Um, we definitely can't call on Him uh, on our own volition, out of our just our own will, for any other reason, unless we have believed. All right, and then the second question, how will they believe in Him if they have not heard? So along the exact same lines, they have to hear, right? They have to hear the gospel. Again, it's a rhetorical question, and by nature, humans are opposed to God, but they have to hear this. But notice it doesn't just say they have to read. They have to hear it. It must be heard. The gospel is meant to be spoken. It's meant to be said through our mouths. God uses the means of people, of his people, his own creation, sinful creation that we've become to share the good news, to share the gospel, to speak it to others. How much more personal is it to sit down and talk to one another in fellowship, brother to brother, sister to sister, than it would be to just send text messages all the time. Never see each other. Never be together. Right? There's a there's such a big difference when you get emails, right, at work. Well, me and Andy get lots of emails at work, and sometimes you can just read those with, it's just dry as paper, and, and it can upset you because there's, there's no personality behind it, and the words that are being said can be taken in, in any way that the reader wants to hear them. It's good information. It does help. But there's such a personal aspect to the gospel and hearing God's word will affect someone's heart because of our nature. Because God's made us in his image. We are personal and he is personal. He is a personal God. He is a personal savior to each and every one of us here. And for the whole world, he will do the work in anyone's heart that he calls on. Yeah, Jeremy. This is, uh, to me, just such a, a critical point because, I mean, I, Paul just came off the heels of one of the strongest passages on how it's God's work alone who saved somebody. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, you'll hear a retort sometimes by people who don't believe that, saying, well, then why evangelize? Right. And here, Paul, right after that, how will they hear how are they calling him when they haven't believed? He doesn't go to, 
well, God will just do it. <laughs> yeah. he, he still he puts the responsibility on the Christian yeah. to go be a gospel herald. And that's why hyper-Calvinism makes no sense. This right. idea that, I mean, I, I was studying recently about a smaller group. It's a Baptist offshoot of an offshoot of an offshoot group where they don't send missionaries and they don't evangelize because they absolutely believe that God's just going to do what he's going to do. And it's, it's totally anti-biblical. Right. Uh, the, we should never, ever let our minds consider the sovereignty of God in such a way that he doesn't use the means of his people. Right. Because, yes, he's absolutely sovereign in salvation. <laughs> and he gets all the credit yeah. for someone being saved. All the credit. Right. Yep. But he doesn't do it apart from the means of his people. Right. And reaching them. Right. Yeah, his means. He chose those means. And he's doing it that way on purpose. And we got to be careful not to fall down that trap as we're reading through Romans. And we just got through chapter 9 where it seems like, oh, that's a possibility. And Paul is not saying that is it. There's lots of human responsibility in this. And he, Paul also doesn't say, how will they hear without a preacher? Well, they'll just have a dream. <laughs> now, that, and that may happen in some cases. Like your stories, especially from the Muslim world and stuff, from missionaries, that may happen. But if it does happen, it's a unique situation. Right. Um, where Paul here is saying these standard means is you go and you tell them. You right. physically move your body and physically use your mouth. Right. And I would still think a seed was planted by someone with those individuals that might have dreamt yeah. about an encounter with, with an angel or with God. So, yeah, it's, it's very important. Um, we are we're social people and individuals and just humans in general. We are meant to be together. And it's important that we speak this word. The authority of Jesus comes through the word spoken uh, because Jesus speaks through his preachers um, that proclaim the gospel, right? Along with preaching the gospel, personal testimony and personal behavior, like seeing someone change um, once God has taken their life, it is very powerful. It's powerful as well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Our own stories are very powerful. You're right. Um, and again, there's always caution to be aware. Not all, quote unquote, preachers um, are drawing from the well of Christ, right? They might be drawing from their own well and providing their, their own thoughts and information to the word. And we just need to be discerning on that and pay attention to what uh, we listen to and what we're being taught. And question it if need be, you know. Uh, ask questions. Ask questions of your, your teachers and your preachers. Make sure you get clarifying statements if you hear something that you thought, oh, that doesn't, that doesn't sound right to me, or I don't understand this part uh, in Scripture or the Bible. Um, but sometimes preachers can get up and just preach about themselves. They can preach about the world, um, man-made philosophies, man-made religions. And we got to know that Christ isn't speaking through that. Those are individuals speaking to themselves, so little, little warning on that. But again, their words are powerful. Their words lead people just down the wrong path, right? They allow people to be zealous without knowledge. Test the spirits. Yeah, yeah. It points right back to verse 3, where they're seeking their own righteousness. Verse 2 and 3, where they have a zeal but not in accordance with knowledge. So it's, it's important to have that discernment. It's important to be in our word and to be um, a, a student of it so that we understand more and more as we grow in our understanding and our 
salvation so that we can not only protect ourselves and our families, but others too. Everyone in this church, we want to protect from any type of false teaching. Because hearing people speak, and when they're speaking falsely, it, it's e more easy to be led by that than just reading a book. Right? Because there's, there's not as, enough, as much personal information in there. Jim? There's, there's a, a, a group or there's individual preachers today that just preach love. It's all about love, 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 love. And if, if people don't understand sin, they don't understand the condemnation, they don't need a savior. Right. If I'm not condemned, I don't. If I'm not in danger, I don't need somebody to save me. Right. And so you have to preach sin. Yeah. You know. You know. It's like, well, you're scaring these kids by telling them about hell. You know. Right. Well, <laughs> they need to understand. The if it wasn't in here, then we wouldn't preach it and teach it, right? But it is. That's, I mean, that's part of the gospel. Absolutely. And, uh, if you skip that part, people aren't going to get it. Right. Uh, you know, Romans tells us that God is revealed in nature, mm -hmm. but it doesn't reveal to us God, our sin and our need for <coughs> salvation. It reveals God's majesty, and that's good. Mm -hmm. But we need to hear a preacher tell us, or, you know, somebody, we need to understand, we hear, hear the message that we are sinners. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. And that gets us right into the, the next part here where third, uh, Paul asks his third question, how will they hear without a preacher? So preacher, um, I got some, an article here. The word in Greek is keruso, which means, as Jeremy mentioned a minute ago, to be a herald. Um, and the, the definition be to be a herald, to officiate as a herald, um, to proclaim after the manner of a, of a herald, and um, check my notes here real quick. It's talking about um, to suggest and formality with the gravity and authority which must be listened to and obeyed. And in this article, I want to read, um, this is from Rainier Ministries, just found this very intriguing. Uh, they wrote, the word preach comes from the Greek word keruso, which means to proclaim, to declare, to announce, or to herald a message. It was the message proclaimed by the Kerux, K-E-R-U-X, is that word, Kerux, who was the official spokesman or herald of a king because the crux was the appointed official representative of the king or the government, his specific job was to announce with a clear and unquestionable voice the desires, dictates, orders, recent events, news, policy changes, or message that the king or government wished to express to the people. The position of this crux spokesman or herald was viewed to be the highest, most noble, privileged position in the kingdom because his position gave him routine access to the king that was afforded only to rare individuals. To be the king's crux was an honor and supreme privilege that necessitated the highest level of professionalism and excellent performance. When the king wanted to give a message to his people, he summoned the crux. The crux came to the king's throne room with writing instruments and paper in hand. 
Then he carefully and accurately penned the communication that the king desired to express to his people. After the king was finished dictating his message, the crux was allowed to freely speak to the king to ask questions of clarification to make certain his understanding every point of the king's message. Because this man was speaking on behalf of the king, there was no room for mistakes in his delivery of the message. When he finally stood before the people to announce the message given to him, uh, it had to be accurate, precise, and faithful to what the king wanted to express to his people. Um, as important as it was for the corrupts to accurately understand and communicate the king's message, it was equally his responsibility to capture and convey the sentiment, the heart, the emotion of the kings of these various issues. Uh, thus, the Corux was expected to deliver his message with emotional impact in order to properly represent both the word and the heart of the king. Proper attire was essential for this uh, notable position. For when the Corux stood before the people to speak on behalf of the king, he was also physically representative of the king in all his splendor and glory. The responsibility of the uh, Publicity representing the king demanded that he dress appropriately for the uh, shabbily dressed crux would have been an insult to the honor of the king. And because the crux was primary connection between the people and the king, he was also required to learn how to speak to the people in a kind, cultured fashion. If he was rude, his behavior, behavior would reflect negatively on the king. If he was kind and courteous, that would reflect favorably on the king. As the king's spokesman, the Crux understood that every word he spoke, every piece of clothing he wore, and every action, both public and private, would ultimately affect people's opinion of the king. Consequently, because of his great responsibility as the king's spokesman, he knew that every detail of his life was to be lived honorably, honestly, and uprightly. His personal life, as well as his public life, had to be spotless, immaculate, pristine, gleaming, squeaky clean, free of accusation. When the crux had finished delivering the king's message to the people, he turned, left the platform to which he spoke, and he remained silent until the king summoned him back to the throne room to give him another message for his people. So in their article, he writes, keeping this in mind, let us consider again what um, Jesus meant. And now he was referring to Jesus talking about um, his direction in Mark 16, 15. Uh, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, it's the same word that Paul is using here. Um, what did he meant when he commanded all the believers to go into the world to preach the gospel? Um, to preach the message, the crux, the king's spokesman, is to be clear by using the word preach. God is communicating messages um, with that word, in Scripture, he's, use, he's using that word preach, crux, um, for us. So as believers, we must learn to see ourselves as representatives of Jesus Christ. Although we may never stand in a public pulpit to preach, it is, in fact, uh, it is a fact that our life is the most important pulpit. What you say and do in your life reflects on the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and as believers, it's absolutely essential that you spend time in the presence of the Lord so that you can hear his word and capture his heart. You should never think of the time you must spend in God's presence praying and reading the word as laborious or dreadful. It is a high honor that God has given you, 
He beckons you to come to his throne room so he can speak to you, share with your heart, and then empower you with his Holy Spirit to take the message to the people that are desperately waiting for it. And never forget that you possess a position of great privilege. Um, so just an explanation of the word preach there. Um, I know as we think of it, we just think of our pastors and elders that get up and, and preach here and, and teach on Sunday mornings and occasionally some other times. Um, but it's definitely more of a, a representative of someone who's speaking the gospel and truth uh, with authority, but with love and sharing our king's heart, our Lord's heart, right? And saying it with our words and not just reading it like I just read that article because that was lame. But it'd be better if I had that memorized and I looked you all in the eye and said that, right? And that's what, that's what um, is, is being meant here as Paul's talking through this as well. And we all need a preacher. We all needed to hear every one of us who are saved in this room right now. We had to hear it from someone, somehow, some way, even through the radio. Right, Roy? Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. I, uh, yes. I, what that article was saying about the background of um, you know, someone who considers his life or her life to be representative of the king and takes care to live that way, uh, of course, is vitally important. And, and I think in a lot of areas, people don't consider that strongly enough. But um, I also think, and I, we've talked about this before, one of the most powerful evangelistic tools that we have <laughs> is to ask someone for forgiveness when we do mess up. Mm -hmm. uh, I, someone uh, in my life recently, uh, there was a car in front of this person who was driving <laughs> in a uh, not so helpful manner. And uh, the, this person uh, made a gesture to the person. And it turns out that that person was the next door neighbor. Uh, <laughs> Oops. And my advice was, you know, if, if, did he see you? Yeah. Go, go ask for forgiveness, you know. I mean, now, of course, if you didn't see, there's a conversation out there, too. But, I mean, to go, to go make amends, though, is not something the world does. Right. What a powerful demonstration of the gospel to go to somebody and say, I sinned against you, I was wrong, would you please forgive me? Right. Uh, just that action, I think, is, is so powerful. And so often, we can get caught up in, well, we've got to be squeaky clean Christians. Right, yep. And then we just cover it up and pretend like we are, we defend ourselves, and, we, and that's not gospel-oriented right. at all. That's hypocrite. Yeah. Yeah, we don't want to be a hypocrite. And we don't want to elevate this holiness of living to where, yeah, um, this is our, our righteousness and we must just be squeaky clean and, and never admit any sin. Uh, it's a, a great testimony to admit it and confess it and to literally get our, our feet washed by our Lord in doing so as well. Um, very, very important. Again, why we try to live according to uh, the word of Scripture and what Jesus taught us. So, to spread God's message, he chose the means of man. God chose the means of man. That through his own creature, he, and the very creature he created, he intends to use to save more of his creatures. His man, right? Those who he has elected, it gives all the power to God, who is sovereign and owns the right to salvation. God owns that right. 
Okay, the next word I want us to look at, uh, Paul asked the fourth question, how will they preach unless they are sent? Sent, that word is uh, apostello. I think that's how you say it. What does that sound like? Yeah, apostle. Um, so I got uh, another article. I, I know I'm reading a lot today, but this was, it was just really helpful stuff in making sure we understand this passage. Um, we know that the word apostle is used in two main different ways in Scripture, right? And I'm looking at my time, so I'm not going to go in great detail. But the capital A, apostle, is what Paul is. And he is uh, an apostle that was appointed by the Lord Jesus himself and is going out and preaching, teaching the word in the world. And there was 12 apostles, right? Um, and Paul may have been the, the 13th, something like that, right, Tyler? Um, yeah, untimely born, for sure. But this word is not, the as Paul's using it, it's not being meant as a capital A apostle. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page with that. Um, and this article from gotquestions.org, uh, says, beyond the unique 12 apostles of Jesus Christ, there were also apostles in a generic sense. Barnabas is referred to as an apostle in Acts 13.2 and 14.4. Uh, Adronius and Junius are possibly identified as apostles in Romans 16, verse 7. The same Greek word usually translated apostle is used in used to refer to Titus in 2 Corinthians 8.23 and Ephroditus in Philippians 2.25. So there definitely seems to be room for uh, the term apostle being used to refer to someone besides the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. So anyone who was sent, the word sent, could be called an apostle. So what exactly would be the role of an apostle outside of the 12 apostles is the question here in the article. Uh, it's not entirely clear from the definition of the word, the closest thing today to an apostle in the general sense is a missionary. Uh, a missionary is a follower of Christ who is sent out to do a specific mission proclaiming the gospel. And a missionary is an ambassador of Christ to people who have not heard the good news. Uh, and in the article it says, however, to prevent confusion, it's likely best to not use the term apostle to refer to any position in the church today. I don't agree with that. The vast majority of occurrences of the word apostle or apostles in the New Testament refer to the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. There are some today who are seeking to restore the position of apostle, and this is a dangerous movement. So frequently, those claiming the office of apostles seek authority equal to or at least rivaling the authority of the 12 apostles. So always take heed, especially to preachers that you're, to, that you're questioning, right? Always take heed to that. Um, this would fit with the New Testament's warning against false apostles, 2 Corinthians 11, 13. So in a sense, all followers of Jesus Christ are called to be apostles. But remember, in a sense, we are all to be his ambassadors, and we see that in 12, uh, Matt, sorry, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. We are called to be ones who are sent, in quotation marks, uh, quotation marks. We are all to be preachers of the good news. And they reference Romans 10, 15, which is where we're at. We're reading this right now. We are meant to be preachers of the good news. And we just went over what preacher means. So I'm hoping we're piecing the puzzle pieces together and following Paul as he's teaching through this. Okay? So, 
How will they hear without a preacher? They won't. We need people to go out. We need each other to go out. We need to share with our neighbors, our friends, our families. And we need to speak the word of God in truth, with authority, to everyone. The whole world. The whole world needs salvation. If we run across another believer and we don't know and we're sharing with them, you think they're going to be offended by you sharing the gospel? No, 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 absolutely not. That happened to me at work a couple of years back. And uh, I was sharing with uh, a guy I was working with, Daniel, and uh, he was like, wait a minute, are you a believer? I said, yeah. He's like, me too. And, you know, it was a great reunion. So um, you're not going to find offense in those who believe. You'll find offense in those who don't believe um, sometimes as you share. But for the most part, from what I've personally witnessed here in Utah, that most folks are pretty open to it, especially folks you don't know. The more personal you get with them, uh, the more offended they could be, obviously. But it's important to uh, be in our own sense, our own preachers with the way we live, with the way we speak, and what we teach. And if you feel unqualified, I think to a point we all feel unqualified in what we're doing and what we're teaching and what we're preaching. But that's, that's why God's given us his word and we have access to it. And we have extreme access to it in this country, right? We can get any translation we want and as many as we can get and we just order it from Amazon and it's here in 12 hours. It's great, right? Um, and we should spend time learning that and being a student of that. Uh, because it's just so incredibly important. The better we know it, the better we can be a corrupt. We can be the king's spokesperson. We can know his heart and his sentiment and his truth, and we can go out and share that with anyone we speak to. Yes? Yeah, as you were reading that first article describing that word, I couldn't help but think of Jen Saki and whether or not it's true, just the perception that she kind of has to cover up for the, the president and uh, make it more presentable, right? Uh, not just her, but past people in that same position as well. But we don't have that issue. We have the, the perfect word of God, and we don't have to tidy it up or fancy it up. Uh, we just have to preach it faithfully. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we can. And it's right here for us. So let me finish up in verse 15, where Paul writes um, the second part of that verse, how beautiful are the feet are those who are, uh, sorry, how beautiful are the feet to those who bring good news of good things. And then he's writing this, and it's coming out of Isaiah 52, 7. Speak of the beautiful feet of the good news of the gospel. Um, obviously, this isn't literally about the feet and their beauty. Uh, their feet, and particularly if they had walked a lot, would be pretty disgusting, right? They wore sandals at best. And they walked everywhere. Uh, we have a much, much more luxurious life than that. Um, so it's not literally about the feet, uh, but it's about their actions and the sweetness of them, um, of them coming to share. But why feet and why not the mouth? We were just talking about hearing. Uh, why not the tongue? We were just, we were just reading through here, realizing that uh, there must be a preacher and, and one must hear to believe. And, if, and they need that before they can call on the name of the Lord. So why not the tongue or the heart? Um, in verse 10, we talk, we, the heart, the heart must believe. Well, in Isaiah here, the feet are representing the, the eagerness, the swiftness, the urgency. Um, it's uh, a visual of a long distance travel to bring forth and proclaim the good news to those who must hear it. 
And Isaiah at this time, the prophet was speaking to a future time when um, Jerusalem would be lying in, a, in desolate and in Babylon, uh, would be in captivity of Babylon. And Isaiah is urging them to wake up. And after a long, weary time in ruin, the messenger swiftly bringing the message of Judah's redemption. The prophet could see the messenger running through the mountains, and it was breathtaking, and it was beautiful um, in, in the sight, and something that they must rejoice over. And that's what Isaiah was talking about here, and how beautiful are the feet. And then 100 years later, after Isaiah's time, um, the same imagery is used in Nahum in a prophecy concerning Judah's imminent victory over Assyria, where he says, look, there on the mountains, the feet of the one who brings the good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. That's Nahum 1.15 if you need to look that up. And then the same wordings being used here nearly a thousand years later by Paul. And he's using the same language to describe the news of peace and salvation in Jesus our Capital L-O-R-D, right? It's the same Lord. It's the same Savior. And he's using the same language here to describe that. Just as Judah celebrated the good news and deliverance uh, from their enemies in the Old Testament, at least it was being prophesied about, so also in this day, Paul's using the saying to rejoice in the good news of salvation through Jesus the Lord, who set us free from the captivity of Sin, right? And our own captivity. So then reading that, how joyous should be, uh, how joyous all should be that God would use those feet to carry the message of salvation to the ends of the earth. And in a way, we're, we're all missionaries and we decide that in how we live, right? We know um, our pastors have moved to come here specifically uh, to do work and be on mission for God. And we've sent people out, and we've supported those who are in missions right now. But that doesn't mean that you and I, living our lives here in this uh, city and in this state, are on missions as well in our own lives and how we live and everyone that we speak to and, and who we um, share the good news with. And Paul's using this uh, quotation from Isaiah to just explain how beautiful is that action, how Wonderful are those feet to bring good news of the gospel. And like Jim said, it's hard because they got to know the bad news before they realize what the good news is. And so we are called to share that. So we'll continue on this next week and um, go over the next set of verses. And again, it's explaining how Israel is rejecting that. So we got to keep that in mind as we've been through, nine, through chapters 9, 10, and 11, that Israel's rejection of this good news and take it and apply it to our own lives and how we can um, be God's messenger, God's preacher. Okay, I'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for your text. Thank you for um, just filling us with your spirit and leading us in lives that we can be changed as we listen to your word expressed and um, that we can live with each other and uh, grace and call each other to uh, grow in our sanctification. And uh, thank you for this church body. And thank you for the rest of this day and this service. In Jesus' name, amen.